Welcome to The Sound of the Hound. Series 2. The podcast about the early days of recorded sound. In it, we talk about the recording pioneers and artists who created the modern music industry over 100 years ago. We look at the sometimes ridiculous lengths they went to to capture sound and the technology they used in order to do it. We come from the point of view of spirited amateurs. Yes, we're very much armchair enthusiasts. And we play a little scratchy music along the way. This podcast comes to you with the support of the EMI Archive Trust, the Music and Technology Archive. This is The Sound of the Hound. Hello, welcome to this episode of The Sound of the Hound. As usual, it's Dave Holly And James Hall. And this week we are talking about the most adventurous trip so far by Fred Geisberg and his companies at the Gramophone Company. This is a this is a humdinger of a of an expedition. It's it's about a year it took in nineteen oh two, and they basically go to the Far East, India, Burma, Malaysia, Java, China, and Japan. I mean, sounds like a hell of a gap year, doesn't it? I mean this is yeah. this is a massive, massive trip. Yeah, it's a big trip now. Um, but, but then, and it's a big trip when you're carrying enough recording equipment to survive and, and, and make records across a year. Maybe we should start with just a little bit of a recap of where we are in the history of Geisberg and the Gramophone Company. So it's 1902. It's actually no longer just the Gramophone Company. It's the Gramophone and Typewriter Company. I can't remember who the executive was who thought maybe the, there won't be a long-term future in records. Was it William Barry Owen? Was it... He, or the other guy. It's the other guy. The, the other one. Yeah. The other one. <laughs> Him. <laughs> yes. There's anyway, we all remember There's a future in board. typewriters. Yeah. And, and, but, but the, the record company is expanding. They, they leave behind their recording studios in Maiden Lane, where they made the, the first four or five years worth of recordings. The grimy former smoking room in Maiden Lane is no longer. And they moved to a sort of shiny new, um, office apartment where where there were typewriter sellers as well as record sellers um, in the City Road in London, 21 City Road. Silicon I, Roundabout, as it is now. Isn't is it? that where it is? It yeah, is, the yes. Hub, the, the technology hub of London. Well, it, it, it's sadly not a silicon high-tech business. I had a look at the building and 21 City Road is now a Tesco Express, which is very sad. Um, opposite, interestingly enough, or I found it interesting, there is um, what looks like a castle. It's a sort of building with turrets and it's the honorable artillery company headquarters back in fred's day in 1902 it was where the royal london militia were based so it was a, a sort of london regiment had its headquarters there and just behind it there is a fantastic open space a cricket pitch it's probably the most expensive cricket pitch in the world and it's still think. there and it's still there it's still there and in fact i put in my diary they do an open day every may and they do a sort of show of militia things on, on that cricket pitch. So I'm going to go, there you go. <laughs> next May. That's my ambition. And a tour of um, Tesco, perhaps? I might get a sandwich at Tesco. And right at the top floor of this City Road building was the new recording studio, as far away from the noise of the street as they could. And it looks um, pretty special. The pictures are stunning. And they've yeah. actually got, they've got a proper size room with a, with a curtain, a thick curtain that divides the middle. So, and the horn, the recording horn kind of pokes through this curtain, obviously to stop noise that they don't want to travelling down the horn. So the orchestra sits one side of the... Would that be right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as, as close as they could, packed in, close to the uh, to the horn, the, the open side of the horn. Amazing. Yeah. And apparently... So, so 
Fred often in Maiden Lane talks about how grimy it is. He never mentions grime. So this, I think this is a brand spanking new They've spent a lot of money. Out. They've yeah. spent a lot of money. So 1902, what else? Uh, Edward VII was, he'd just been uh, crowned. Yeah. Bertie. He, after a false start, apparently in June he was due to be crowned. Then he ended up getting appendicitis. Um, had two months off. Had a, a operation, yeah, right. which was high risk. Yeah, yep. gout. He was drunk. <laughs> of course he was. <laughs> and then he gets crowned in in August. The gramophone company put out their red label catalogue. So, if you remember, Raffoff suggested if you if you kind of establish a slightly different coloured label series, uh, you could sort of price it differently and you go, put the price you go, up. You go premium. You don't go you? premium. And Caruso, when he did his Caruso recordings, they were put on the red um, label. And by 1902, so only five years after he's arrived in the country, four and a half years after he's arrived in the country, they've got enough to put out a sizable catalogue of red labels. Not all their recordings, just the high-quality ones. And they've just invented or launched the 10-inch disc. Mm. Which gives an extra minute or two, I think, of music from the. So it takes it over three minutes. It takes it over three it? minutes. It two yeah. and a bit minutes before and over three minutes. Yeah. And over in America, there's been all sorts of legal ramifications. So the parent company that was not really a parent company, but the the originating company of gramophone technology, the Gramophone Company of America, ends up having a bit of a technology war with the Victor Company, which is owned by Eldridge Johnson, big who, rival. Yeah, but he was the guy that put the motor into um fred found him in somewhere on the east coast in america and he put the uh, engine from a a, a a sewing machine into a gramophone and it became a automatic gramophone rather than a wind-up gramophone yeah. he then invented his own version of the gramophone berliner and johnson sue each other by 1902 they've made up and they put all their eggs in one basket the victor recording company which also has the gramophone the um nipper logo Licensed to it in America. Yeah. And all of the red labels get licensed to Victor. So this in is America. massive. This is consolidation yeah. of it. Yeah. This is Amazon and Google getting they're, together. But, but then they're not, yeah, in Amazon and Google America. And, and then the gramophone company is a sister company. It's not, one's not a parent company of the other, but it's affiliated. And, it, and, and the, the gramophone company operates under a, tech, a license for the technology from America. And they're very, very closely. Yeah. But it's autonomous. it's autonomous. Right? It's autonomous. Yeah. The gramophone company has the rest of the world. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah, America has, has uh, um, uh, Victor has America and one or two other territories. Yeah. 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 And so the rest of the world is a very good jump off point for where Fred's going. So we are September 1902 and he's off on this massive trip. But he does some inventing, doesn't he? Because he, I think he has 30 cases of equipment for this trip, which is a hell of a lot. But. Um, to make it a bit less than it would have yeah, been. He's I, done something, hasn't I think he? they're worried about carrying batteries, which were huge and very, very heavy. Very heavy. And, so um, he gets together with, with actually, I mean, back, we were talking about Eldridge Johnson, but Eldridge Johnson's sidekick when Fred first went to meet him in America in, I think, 1896 or seven, yeah. he was working with a guy called BC or, or Bedford, B for Bedford, Royal who's an engineer, yeah. and between him and Fred, they work out a method of circumventing the need for batteries. You've it's called a weight motor. That's so right, it, yeah, yeah. So it, it, it gets rid of two things, the need for heavy storage batteries. These things were huge and very heavy, but also very fragile clock springs 
that the machine used to rely on. So yeah. this gets rid of the bulk and the kind of delicate and the d- bit. D- delicate yeah. bit. Yeah. So it's, it's a genius thing. And he spends, you know, months developing this. It's again, Fred, Fred, not only, you know, when they need to raise money to, to kind of support the technology early on, Fred raises money. Yeah. He's the guy that puts Eldridge Johnson in touch with Berlin and to put the engine, the motor into the gramophone. He's a player, isn't he's, he? He's, 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 he's constantly works, networking. Yeah, technology, business. I mean, his prime drive is A&R, finding artists and recording them. Yeah. So yeah. they spend most of the weeks up to the 22nd of September, 1902, when they leave, uh, at the docks. I'm not sure which docks, but supervising. Tilbury. 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 Yeah, I found of course, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the SS Coromandel. Yeah. Which, uh, I found an interesting point, actually. So it's, again, that the relationship between what is now Victor and what is the gramophone company. So the gramophone company has set, sent a young guy out called Jack Horde. Jack Horde, H-A-W-D, Horde. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's John, I think it's John Howard Horde. That's, that's the full name. And what he finds in India when he's going up, setting up agencies, he's, he's trying to find um, people that would want to buy, well, retail gramophones and, and records. Yeah. But he finds there's an awful lot of Victor machines in the country. And he says, you've got to... We've got to circumvent this. We've got to build some um, a catalogue of local recordings because otherwise, you know, we're going to be in a straight-out fight with these guys. Right. And they shouldn't even be in this territory. So, so they were selling American recordings. They were selling American recordings and machines into in India. India illegally. Illegally. So he, he, they put a stop to that, presumably correspondence between... Because um, they're kind of affiliated. Yeah, yeah, yeah but they shouldn't be... They carved the world up and they shouldn't be in, in yeah, India. Yeah. How interesting. And he, but he says, one of the things you've got to do, you know, one of the ways that we can differentiate ourselves is record local, local people, native local. people. Um, and that's, that's the drive for Fred going out there. So they're there at the docks. They've got, they've got baggage for a year's remote record making, as he puts it. And Fred also takes samples of the company's latest recordings, including guess, the Caruso, ones. including the Caruso, I guess just to just to um, just to whet their appetite, and give them a demonstration. So you turn up in the middle of, I don't know, Bihar in India with this crazy equipment. People, unless they can see what it does, they're not going to engage, are they? So I suppose this is this is a, a charm offensive, really. I, I wonder. I wonder. Just as a small point, because it, it, it takes him. I can't remember how many days. It's a number of days to get through customs. I think it was three days. Three days to get through customs. And I suspect, you know, how you've probably got a disbelieving customs guard. You know, what is this what stuff? The hell is you this? probably need to get, have a gramophone that you can put on, put a record on, and just play and say, that's what we're doing. You know, even, even just on a practical logistical point, getting through customs, you probably need recordings. Would customs, I mean, this was the day, days of the Raj, obviously. Yeah. Would, would it be, it would be, British government officials, would it, running the ports, or would it be in India? Probably with locals. Probably locals. Well, a mixture of the two. Maybe maybe we'll find out. Um, So they got on this boat. Well, who goes? The Coromandel. So it was Fred and his recording colleague. He's got, yeah, a young guy called called George Dillnut. Dillnut. Um, Dillnut's really interesting. So Dillnut joins the company 1899. We're now in 1902. He he, um, works for the company for decades, and then in 1940, his son, Francis Dilbert, joins um, what is then EMI. Gramophone companies become EMI. Francis works for the company into the 80s, the 1980s. Brilliant. And I, I, he used to be based at Abbey Road. And I've mentioned this before, but I used to run Abbey Road. But the guy that ran Abbey Road, really from the Beatles' time onwards, was a guy called Ken Townsend, and who's still, still around and going strong. And Ken worked with Francis. So 
I worked with Ken. Ken worked with, with Francis. Francis. Francis worked with George. Well, Francis, the son of George. So, I, hold on, hold I feel on. I can almost touch back to this this expedition. So the guy that went out in 1902 yeah. to make all these recordings. Yeah. His son was his, still working his, Abbey Road in the eighties. His son 80s. worked in Abbey Road in the eighties. Yeah, that's from the forties to the eighties. Yeah, that's like that spans. That's it, isn't it? Yeah, and, and and Ken worked until I don't know when he worked to uh, the the nineties. Ken's, Ken's still around. Yeah, isn't and it? I came in in the noughties. So, and, but I, Ken Gosh, was always around. That's six degrees, that four degrees. Of, yeah, so this is wonderful. What a so, lovely thing. So I, so I can touch him. And then and then they've taken a business guy out with them, haven't they? Yes, that's some um, um, uh, Tom Addis. His name was. And he, a company, and, <laughs> Fred writes in his diaries, Tom Addis, who was a business head, accompanied by his good-looking wife. Fred, throughout these diaries, we, we're referring often back to either his memoirs, I think that's, that's from his memoirs, which he wrote in the 1940s, looking back, or his diaries that, that he wrote at the time, which are brilliant. But he's always talking about women. <laughs> he really, really has an eye for women. He and and um, He's a bit of a flirty-gurty, I think. Um, so Fred and George and Tom Addis and his good-looking wife turn up at uh, Tilbury, as we now know, yeah. on the Coromandel. And his description of this boat, I love it, because the world is on the kind of cusp of modernity now, a new century, all these new technologies. And this boat almost encapsulates that that kind of... Like with, metaphor. Yeah, with one foot in the past, though, with just out of Victorian Britain. Um, Fred says the boat... It was of the vintage when shipbuilders couldn't decide between sails and steam power. So they installed both. So you can imagine this boat. So I think it's three or four massive funnels, but then massive sails behind them as well. Again, yeah. One it's foot in the brilliant future, Edwardian one in the image. past. Yeah. So they get on this boat, and it's, uh, it's apparently comfortable, but it carried only cabin and third-class passengers. So that doesn't sound to me like it's a particularly salubrious boat. You know, we're talking sort of easy, easy cruise, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, functional, <laughs> functional. Compared to it, yes, a functional boat. And in the long list of travellers... There were no exalted names from the civil service, military, or judicial. So presumably somewhere in Tilbury, there's a list up on the wall or on the side of the boat, or, or on the, the boat. side of the gangplank on the boat, yeah. and you can you can you can browse it and see who's on it. No one of note, but there were plenty of here we go, hold on. Tea planters, railroad and mining engineers and officials, departmental managers, and a few young women going out to be married or seeking husbands. Middle management, middle class middle, middle management. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so, it, well, he, he also mentions that the, there are the, there are sort of two main sets of the, the Anglo Indians, which is largely described there. But there's also a bunch of Aussies. Yes, um, and he says he says the key difference between the two is the Anglo Indians were largely skint. They had no money. They've obviously been home. They're either coming home and spent all their money at home, or they're poor and they're going out to try and make their fortune. Yes, exactly. Whereas the, the Aussies have a bit of cash and they spend all their days gambling. Yes, they gamble all day and seem to resent the superiority of what they call the Anglo-Indians. Chippy, chippy Aussies. Chippy Aussies. <laughs> Nothing changes. So we've got, here we have, we have sort of very nuanced class divisions in the, or nationality divisions within the boat. It's a five-week trip. Well, I've got I've got some of the places they go. They 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 go to Marseille. They go down the Suez Canal, out into the Red Sea. Um, Gibraltar, I think. Oh, before, they've gone before. to Gibraltar before Marseille. Gibraltar, no, Gibraltar, Marseille. Then probably yes, and around, yes, so have gone gone around, around and, and then yeah, down, yeah. Yes, down the Suez. And then it's Fred mentions that when he's in the Red Sea, it's so hot that he's got to sleep on on deck. It's Brilliant. too hot in the cabins. They go to Aden. 
Um, then they go to Colombo where they drop all the Aussies off. They drop off. all the Aussies off. <laughs> so they've basically gone round. They've gone down. They've gone the, round Spain they, and down the west side of India, yeah. and then round and then back up. Yeah, via Sri Lanka is it now? Yeah, because right all the way up Calcutta to Calcutta is right in it's, its northeastern yeah, yeah. top bit. So yeah. they, wow, that's a hell of a trip, isn't it? There are a couple of people that he he also notices. Um, yes, <laughs> in normal Fred method, I've got a description of them here. He said um, there was a Mister and Mrs Norton, and curiosity ran high about this couple as soon as uh, we had seen the very stylish baggage they brought on board. They were a strikingly handsome American couple, well dressed and exclusive. Mrs Norton easily outdistanced in chic and elegance all our ladies, and we men hungrily admired her as the Nortons paced the deck, absorbed in each other. Dirty old man. Dirty old man. But something happens, doesn't it? Well, when they get to Calcutta, almost the first thing that happens, you want to say what what, what is that? They... they, they they end up waiting in the river for, I think it's the tidal river. And they, they... Yes, yeah, so they arrive in Calcutta. We'll tell the Norton story in a minute. They arrive in Calcutta after five weeks at sea. 27th of October. 27th of October. Yeah. And, and the, 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 the gateway into Calcutta, it's the mouth of the Huli River. And there's a, there's a huge iron kind of gate that swings open to allow boats up into the Huli. But it, you can only operate it in daytime when the tide's high. So they have to wait in the mudflats, I presume, of the, of, the, of the Great Hooley River, having spent five weeks together. And they do something quite eccentric and quite brilliant. Uh, this is one of my favourite excerpts from Fred's diary. Weeks at sea, yeah, you can see the lights of Calcutta shimmering in the background. You're nearly there. So what do they do? They have a fancy dress party. Of course. <laughs> so they, the boat arrives... They drop anchor, and they have a fancy dress. Sorry, not a party, a ball. A ball. A ball. So everyone gets dressed up. The, presumably the next morning, they're then sailing in. and Yeah, they've got to um, wait. They're, they're, there's a reason for them. To, yeah, yeah, there's a reason. Night, but, you know, um, they have a fancy dress ball that, according to the diary, was a great success. The quarter deck was gaily trimmed with bunting. I went, this is Fred, I went as a Japanese. The boat was perfectly still, so we were able to dance without any trouble. I just love it. I mean, I, so many questions. I wonder what, what the other people went as. I wonder what the, the Australians weren't there anymore. But no. I wonder what these, you know, what these, these middle managers, managers from the East and, India Company yeah. or the Rush, what did they go as? And ladies seeking husbands. Yeah. Did people cop off? I mean, was this a, how wild did it get? You would hope so. Well, you would. No, it's great. I, 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 you know, nowadays, you probably wouldn't be allowed to dress as a Japanese or... No, absolutely. You know, it would be, it would be cultural appropriation, but but I, I think it was probably a bit of innocent fun. In and in days. my head, I uh, in my head, I have Fred as a as a guy. Show. I think he, I think he, I think he cross dresses because there is a photo of him in a kimono ah. in Tokyo the following year. I don't know. I just think he would have gone to town. Well, he? He, he certainly was a party animal. From from he was evidence we found animal. all over the place. He was certainly a party animal. So we, we're in Kaga. They have the party. So that, that's great fun. And then the next day, all sorts of odd things happen. So first of all, they said they were put in quarantine. So I don't know what that means, but it, it happened within a day. So I guess they were just checked over for any signs must of have been fever. And, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then the police come on board um, and they come to, if you remember the handsome striking couple with the, um, the very attractive lady that Fred was hungering over. The Nortons. The Nortons. Well, <laughs> it turns out they weren't Mr. and Mrs. Norton at all. He was Mr. Norton. Um, he'd run off from his family, wife and two children, back in Philadelphia. 
and he'd also embezzled a fortune from the bank that he worked in, and so he was arrested on arrival in India. Brilliant. That's good international policing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty impressive. That, that, that is amazing, but I, I guess they had telegraphs in those days, so they could send messages quicker than people could travel. True. And, and yeah, it's amazing. It was all within the British Empire at the time, and there would be a, a, a way of, and I guess the Americans, the British, would have some sort of cooperation treaty, and, yeah. So banged, up in, banged up in Calcutta, poor Mr. Norton. Um, anyway, it then took, as, as we said, it took three days to unload their 30 heavy cases yeah. and pass the customs offices. So that's a, that's a lot of equipment, isn't that's it? That's a lot of equipment, yeah, and it, there, there'll be big, heavy wooden cases. And this is typical, Fred. So this agent, Jack Horde, who'd been sent out there to... Uh, to find artists. As in the first series of this podcast, we discovered in Russia, the agent didn't do a very good job, did he? According to Fred, he assembled a, a collection of artists who watched Fred and, and George curiously as they assembled their gear in this makeshift studio. But actually, they weren't very good. No, they were, he wasn't impressed at all. I mean, I, I, you know, he's, he's, he's quite demanding and I guess he's, He's just been working with Caruso, one of the, yes, the biggest stars in the world. Everything's relative. It's, it's, the bar has been raised for Fred. But, um, but, but also, he, he, he says it was the first time that these musicians had seen a talking machine, the first time a talking machine had come into their lives, and they regarded it with awe and wonderment. As you would. Of course you would. Yeah. Look at this weird thing I've brought. But also, musicians in India were of, of low caste in those days. So there would have been this whole cultural, this huge cultural difference between between Fred and them, clearly. Yeah. But Indian music as well, very different to Western music. Now, yeah. I'm no musicologist, and apologies to any that are listening, but as far as I know, Indian classical music has 12 notes in an octave. There are basically more notes yeah. in Indian music, whereas Western music has eight. Yeah. And, and Indian music, is that there's lots of gliding between notes, and it's based yeah. on intonation rather than... So how... Actually, how Fred knew what made good music, what was good music and what wasn't, is quite interesting, isn't he? I mean, would he know? Well, I, I guess just going back to the guy that had delivered all these unsatisfactory uh, yeah. performers, and it, I'd called him John ha John Howard Horde, but it's actually John Watson Horde, Jack okay. Horde. He was a business guy. You know, he would have absolutely no idea of what was good or bad. So he, he, he's delivered people. Fred seems to, you know, from Russia where, and, and, and dealing with the Tartars. The Tartars. Um, you know, he, he's got much more of a, a, a kind of open view of music, I yeah. think. Um, and he's a risk taker, isn't yeah, he? Yeah. I think, you know, what, what's, I can't remember who said it, but there are only two types of music, good music and bad music. <laughs> and, and I guess Fred found music that he thought was good. Should and, we have a listen to, to the kind of music that Fred would have been listening to? I think that's great. This yeah. recording was actually done. This was with Gramophone Company, but it was done in 1905, I believe, so on a later trip to yeah. India. But it's someone called Benedini Dasi, or Dasi, D-A-S-S-I, and it's called Cambadge. <laughs> There we go. Um, so, what does Fred do? So he he's Horde's got together this 
this these musicians whom Fred doesn't rate at all. Um, he gets a bit depressed, doesn't he? He writes in his diary that um, I soon discovered that the English, uh, who were acting as our agents and factors, so Jack called, the English might as well be living on another planet for all the interest they took in Indian music. They dwelt in an Anglo-Saxon compound of their own creation, isolated from India. They had their own cricket and tennis clubs, tea parties and bridge. The native bazaars never saw them. So and basically, he's stumbled across colonial yeah. Br- colonial Britain, basically. Yeah. And, and, and they're all in the Tolly Gunge Club or wherever they live in Calcutta, with, you know, in, in their walled environments. It's very insular. It's very insular. They, they would never have listened to Indian music yeah. at all. Maybe Jack Horde was hanging around with those people you know, maybe he wasn't outside the compound, maybe he didn't know what was going on. But there were two, yeah, there were two worlds, weren't yeah. there? There was, the, there was the, the, the world of the British rulers and the world of the... And, and never the twain did they did they meet because, rightly or wrongly, that's the, that's the way it was. So Fred brilliantly decides to take matters into his own hands. He goes it? out onto what was called Harrison Road. The Harrison Road. Which, which is now Mahatma Gandhi Road. Harrison Road is... It's part of old Calcutta where there were lots of theatres and opium dens and it was it was a very it, uh, the word grimy comes to mind again it was it was fun it comes was, to mind for me well yeah. it was it was it was where it was kind of the the calcutta equivalent of covent garden yeah but remember this is a city where this was a very dangerous place for 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 british man to go wandering out to kind of find the fun and find the music yeah. um it sounds thrilling doesn't it but it also sounds quite there was a kipling did this thing called the the city of dreadful nights which was an essay about Calcutta in 1899, which is a kind Who of... Who did Kipling? Roger Kipling, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was, it was a sort of an anthropological essay about what Calcutta's like. It was a bit like the um, the George Orwell one about the road to Wigan Pier. It sounds quite thrilling, lots of flickering you know, opium dens and, and, and fun to be had, but you've got to watch it. You've got to watch it. And it was into this world that Fred ventured with a, with a superintendent from the Calcutta police, I believe. That's right, his bodyguard. His bodyguard. <laughs> and off he went. But for Fred and, and I guess George Dilnett would be with him on, on these trips. Young um, George, yeah. Young, young George is how he describes it. I don't know how old he was at this young point. Young George. But, uh, yeah, those two, very brave. I mean, yeah. travelling halfway around the world um, to do something new and, and innovative is, but you, is I pretty guess brave. You think, it. We've travelled halfway around the world, Let's, and we've been presented with this sort of what stuff we don't like at all. Yeah. Let's go find the real Calcutta. Let's go find the real music. The particularly productive place that he, that he goes to is, is the Classical Theatre. The Classical Theatre. Um, which is on Harrison Road. And the first night he's, he's, he goes there, he sees um, a version of Romeo and Juliet, um, which, he, which he describes as, a, as, as, as being a bit odd, I think. The most... It was performed in the most unconventional form. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Um, uh, here we go. Quite arbitrarily... It was introduced by, uh, we were introduced to a course of young Natch girls, or Nouch girls, Natch girls, I think, who were, who were dancers, Indian dancers, and they were heavily bleached in rice powder and dressed in transparent gauze. Yeah, I think that's a strange Which image. is a strange way of putting it. I suspect as well. he means a, a, a sorry with a kind of veil. But, um, yeah. So yeah, Romeo and Juliet, whether it was performed in Bengali or, or English, I don't know, he doesn't, he doesn't say. But um, again, this weird mixture of kind of British and Indian culture kind of melding yeah, European culture in the Romeo and Juliet, and then these Nouch girls. And I think Nouch just means dancing. He so, says they'd lost caste, which I presume means that they were untouchables. Low, lower than the low, exactly. yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. So we're sitting in the theatre in Harrison Road, 
And somehow, Fred meets the wealthy baboos, or a wealthy Indian businessman. I don't know how. He's clearly gets chatting. Well, he's clearly got out of the enclave, hasn't he? He's totally left, out left of the behind enclave. the, the um, colonial bubble, and he's invited to a dinner party. Brilliant. On his way to the dinner party, there's another classic Fred. He's quite snobby, and, oh, and he says, um, "We." He's describing the the, the, the journey to to the house where the dinner party is being held. We elbowed our way through an unsavoury alley, jostled by fakirs and unwholesome sacred cows to a pretentious entrance. I so love that. What he's a sort of snobby, snobby about the pretentiousness. Hates the grubbiness of the thing. And the cows. It's, again, that Fred doesn't seem to enjoy the travelling aspect of travelling. So, you know, so he finds the difference. Or he loves it. And he's kind or of doing he the humble, the humble yeah. brag. Yeah. So let's just read. So, so he's, he's slipped the, the chains of this really rubbish agent. He's gone out with a policeman and his sidekick to find the real Calcutta. They've ended up in a theatre watching Romeo and Juliet, at which he met a wealthy businessman who invites him back for dinner. Yeah. And he goes to his house, jostles down this unsavoury alley with the cows, and sits down for dinner at the, at the yeah, wealthy which business he, house. Yeah, which he describes as a, a rigidly European dinner. So they, were, they, they weren't the only Europeans there. It was a big do. Or was it a, was European, in, or, or it was Indian, but with a European bent to it with you know the, the, this guy was an anglophile and, yeah. and wanted to i think he's cooked them you know french cooking you know it's a, <laughs> right. a rigidly european dinner and they sat on their own didn't they yeah. they, they sat their separate. own table yeah and then after that they retired to a large salon and were entertained by more of these nautch girls now and this is when things happen yeah he meets somebody who's go, goes on to become an indian superstar so here we are he's gone down various rabbit holes to get here and he's in, in this Businessman's out there, which is a lovely dinner, and some Nouch girls come on. And one of them is a dancing girl called Gora Jan. So she is a she's a Mohammedan, right? He describes her as such. Rather fat and covered with masses of gold armlets, anklets, rings, pearl necklaces, heavy earrings hanging from about ten piercings in each ear. Her crowning adornment was a large diamond fastened on the side of her nose. Her teeth were quite red from betel nut chewing. And her chewing habit, and this is this is just brilliant, her chewing habit necessitated the presence of a bearer following her about with a silver cuspidor into which she would empty her mouth for. That's a spittoon. That's a spittoon, basically. Much, yeah. for this, much for the distraction of her charms. Well, I, I think that that is the fi- the last line, much to the distraction of her charms. So he's, still, he's still... She's spitting away. Unbelievable. She terminated each song with the most cleverly executed muscle dance. No idea. No idea. No idea at all. But she's well paid. This, lady, this, yeah, is, this is a star. 300 rupees an evening. Yeah. Uh, and often can be seen driving in the Maidern uh, in a fine carriage and, and pair. So a bit like the, Caruso in Italy. You know, she's locally, she is, she's the business. She um, is the business. So he, he's basically stumbled across something of a local superstar. Yeah. A very local superstar. Who... Gora Jan. Gora Jan. Now, according to some research and some accounts... He's actually a courtesan who was slightly slumming it by playing in such places, which would kind of make sense given that he was a wealthy businessman. Yeah. What is it? Is is a courtesan a prostitute? Effectively. Yeah. So effectively. Perform for money. Perform for money. Both. But for the upper echelons. And and, and 
Yes. And, and additional extras. But Fred, she sparks something in Fred because he, 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 he sees, uh, he hears a beautiful voice. Yes. He sees authenticity. Yes, he's very impressed by the he's voice. He's really impressed yeah. with her. So he puts her on the top of his list, his yeah. mental list for prospects of recording. Fred doesn't actually say she's the first um, person he records, but she's the first person that he mentions yeah. recording. And yeah. so there's been a, I'm afraid there's been a bit of a myth grown up about who, who what who that she was the first person to be recorded in Indian or the first Indian to be recorded. I've done a bit of research. Go on. Um, it turns out that actually Indians had been recorded before this um, uh, trip to India. There were three artists who were recorded in London. There was a guy called Harnam Das, a guy called Bola Nauth, which is very similar to the the Nauch girls. This is Bola Nauth. And there's a guy called Ahmed. Ahmed did five Urdu records in London. So they, in Maiden Lane, they recorded five Urdu records. And then Harnam Das and Bola Nauth made 15 Hindi records they were described as. So Fred presumably, so he obviously, he'd had a bit of experience of Indian music then. Yes, already. He, he must have been the guy recording those. So... I just want to do a little bit on, on Harnam Das. Really interesting. Harnam Das uh, ends up, he's, he's a lawyer. He's over in London to train as a lawyer, arrives in 1899. The recordings are made in 1899. So he's obviously been kind of roped in. You're an Indian. You've got a nice voice. Come and do some songs. But he's a lawyer. I wonder how they met. Rules. I, I, rules? Rules, possibly. Rules. Absolutely, possibly rules. He becomes appointed lawyer in 1904. He's uh, attached to Lincoln's Inn. And then this is really interesting. In 1923, he changes his name. Harold Percy Douglas. No way. And he has a he has a long career, a long and successful career in the law. Bowler Nauf, who does some of the other recordings, he is trained as a doctor in London. He's over to train as a doctor at St. Thomas's. And um, he joins the Indian Medical Service and then is appointed ultimately honorary physician to the king in 1922. So these two What's guys. His name? What was his Bowler Nauf. Bowler is B H O L A. Bowler. Yeah. Nauth, N A U T H. And did he change his name? No, he, no, he, he kept, kept the same name. Kept... Same. Well, he's working in India in, in, in the Indian Medical Service. But Harnam a... Das obviously thinks it's better for business or something to change his name to Harold Percy Douglas. Just stories, aren't they? Just, yeah. just fascinating. These... I, you could follow leads from yeah. Yeah. these interesting people to all sorts of places. But I just I thought it was great. But but actually there's a fantastic researcher who sadly died earlier this year called Michael Kinnear, who's done a lot of research at the EMI archive yeah. on these Indian trips. And he's, he's proven that, that the, his name is, did I say his name? Michael Kinnear, anyway. Yeah. That actually Gohan Jan, that we've been talking about, isn't the first person to be recorded on this trip. She's the sixth. Well, Gorajan, well, on this, on, on this, this trip. So in, perhaps in, in he recorded India. some of the ones who he, he then said weren't very good. Possibly. Uh, the first person, Kinnear, has, has said there, there was a, a couple of, there was a 12-year-old girl and a 14-year-old girl that, from the classical theatre they were performing there. And the first person was somebody called Soshi Makihi, which, right. who actually sounds Japanese more exactly, to me. Yeah. Soshi, Soshi Makimi, S-O-S-H-I-M-U-K-I-H-I. And she recorded, so she was the first. And then right. there were five other people who may well have been, well, if, no, she's from the classical theatre. He's already could, made contact. It could have been the Romeo and Juliet people, couldn't yeah, it? Yeah, so it's those people. And then he meets Gorajan. And he's bowled over by her. So he, so they meet at this, at this dinner party, if we can call it that. And over the weekend, uh, so this was on a Thursday, I think, over the weekend he negotiates with her. And on the Tuesday, 
she turns up. She turns up at this recording studio. With an entourage. With a massive entourage. So she's got four musicians. So two Ezraj players. Now those are the kind of violin type yeah. things. That, that, uh, one tambura player. That's and, drums. That's the kind of tambourine drum thing. And one pair of mandias, which I think are little cymbals, are they? Yes, I think right. so. So that's four musicians. But her posse, her yeah. entourage. She's got more staff than musicians. It's like Kanye West. It's brilliant. Posse, her other attendants were a bearer for her pipe. And to prepare, prepare her beetle nuts. Of course. Very important. Um, one ayah, or black girl attendant. One coolie to fan her. Another girl to carry her spittoon. And a coolie to carry the traps. Which is baggage. What, what is traps? Yeah, baggage. I, looked, I had to look that up. But it's another old-fashioned way of saying her, her baggage, her stuff. So hold on. So that's four musicians and one, two, three, four... And then five staff. So nine people coming in her trail. Brilliant. Now, Fred notes Riley that Calvé, who was he was an opera singer, yeah. correct? Calvé came to our lab with far less cortege, cortege, um, sorry, and, and required much less attendance. So basically, she turns up more pounded. She is a, a she's a she's a superstar she's already. A superstar. She's bling. She's a superstar. Yeah, but her voice, her voice is apparently fantastic. She performed with ease some very difficult vocalizing such as scales and a sort of guttural trill uh, with which she drew attention to herself. We've got a recording, actually, haven't we? Yeah, let's play a little Can bit of... Uh, Gora yeah. tell but that voice is pretty spectacular isn't it yeah even I mean, buried deep in a in an old recording yeah, yeah. The, the kind of elasticity and the way the way that she she but you can tell it structurally very different to western music isn't it yeah yeah but but a pleasant voice i, I mean yeah. I, now look, i've got another recording and it says online that it's 1902 you think this isn't real because there are no scratches it sounds a little bit too but it, she was re- a, she was recorded for about 10 years by the gramophone company so this may have been a bit later yeah It's too clean, isn't it? Yeah, it sounds far too clean. But, but it sounds like the same voice to me. Yes. Um, so, so that's what she'd have sounded like to Fred when it was going in the horn. <laughs> yes, and the exactly. other version we played was what it sounds like coming out of a piece of shellac. And they know. did a lot of they they recorded her an awful lot, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. No, they they were very pleased, and they played not just um, Indian stuff. They also, um, he said. They reproduced a, a, a version of the dual song from Faust. From Faust. I don't know how they did um, that. No. Uh, with, with Gurujan. Yeah. And, and he says, again, he's, he's you know, made, make allowances for when he was talking, but he described her as the little lady. The little lady and her attendants were very much astonished by the rapid execution and thrills. Trills, trills, sorry. So, so she would record this stuff, and then he would be able to, to play it play back. back from the from the master press. And he says it was an early high point. Yeah, most of the rest would sheer grind. Yeah, Sunday's not accepted. They they, they recorded lots of stuff. I mean, on, he, he, in his diary entry, he mentioned Sunday the sixteenth, 
of November, that would be, yeah, November 1902. Today we made 30 records of the Classic Theatre Orchestra. Back to the Classic Theatre guys the, again. It's the lure of Harrison Road, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and again, consisting of two baritone horns, one cornet, two clarinets, two tambulas, and a set of triangles. They all play in unison. And I'd love to hear that. But, but he doesn't sound te- terribly enthused by he it. Doesn't. It sounds a bit sort of, you know, a bit, bit hard work. Now, I've got a... There was a paper by the... Um, for the Society of Ethnomusicology called The Record Industry Comes to the Audience. It was published... Sorry, Comes to the Orient. Published in, uh, in 1981 by the University of Illinois Press by a guy called Pepper Gronov. He says on this trip, taking in... Burma, Japan, China, um, and India. They recorded 1,700 discs, which is a lot. Wow. Which is a hell of a lot. Um, and between... Uh, they went back to India, didn't they, after this? Yeah, this is the first recording trip. This is the first of, of a few. They go several times in the next <clears throat> 10 years. So between 1900 and 1910, the gramophone company made 4,410 Indian recordings. Blight, just which, in India? Just in India. Blight. So on this trip, the, back to my, back to the um, research of Michael Kinnear, yeah. um, he said that there were more than 500 recordings sent back to... what when they, when they departed, they departed for China, but they sent all their Indian recordings back to Hanover, where they were pressed and manufactured, and then sent around the world, most of and them then, being sent straight back to India, which they arrived back in March. Think of the carbon footprint. So they're in India, yeah. they, get, they send them back to... They, sorry, they get to India, yeah. record, send them back, back to, Hanover, to Hanover pressing. And then they get... So more than 500 get sent back, Yeah, but only 216 are any good. So 216 commercial they recordings... Go back to India. Yeah, go back to, to India. And then and the, those recordings, and then there's already... Horde sets up a shop... And there are other shops selling records already All in Bombay and Calcutta and other cities. And then in 1907, the gramophone company actually opened a pressing plant in Calcutta. Yeah, I, th- uh, I think the, the Indian market became huge. It was for, huge. For and that also acted as a hub for the surrounding countries, for the neighbouring countries as well. So this really became a sort of centre of, of the gramophone industry, didn't yeah. it? When I, when I joined EMI in 1995, there was still a big manufacturing plant in india india had the second best archive in 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 the world of emi they they replicated a lot of the good practices from from the uk um so that that kind of tradition that was being set up in 1900 went all the way to the end of the 20th century yeah yeah fantastic but talk about turning up in a city and just kind of deciding to jack in convention and go and explore and discover stuff i mean dangerous and, and, and dirty though it was what a brilliant thing to do don't you think absolutely but do, you, do you remember when he got back from russia yeah he just he was so sick of traveling and then as soon as he got back to england he, he's just got the bug and he, he, yeah. he's so desirous of going back out on the road so he's he's kind of you know when he was talking about the alley being grimy and the, the unwelcome sacred cows he can very much see the grubbiness of life on, on the road but he so loves the thrill of the adventure, and you can fit, you can kind of feel the thrill, can't you? And the you can smell the sandalwood and feel yeah. the thrill of, of, of what he does. It's almost like he willfully wants to go out there and, and not do what he's told. Yeah, and put himself out and on put, the edge. put himself out. But it's interesting. I, I thought it was quite nice in in his um, in his diaries. He he meets an American guy over there, and um, so he, yes, he's away travelling, and he's away travelling with English people. 
But he said, he went on Thursday, the 27th of November, he's been there about a month at this point, I went to the theatre with a young American, Mr. Lusk. The young man is a Yale graduate and represents the General Electric Company of America in the East. So that's, isn't General Electric, that's, that comes from Edison originally. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's one of Edison's men out, out, out in the East, not doing records or cylinders, but doing um, whatever the General Electric Company were doing there. Light bulbs, I suppose, wasn't it? it was Light bulbs, put, putting bulb in, and, putting and, in and infrastructure, probably lighting up Calcutta generators, and yeah. yeah. I think actually the street. I read a bit about what was the name of the street? Harrison Road. Harrison Road gets street lights in in about 1908, 1907. So Mr. Lusk may well have been sort of maybe they had that or maybe he was with him. Maybe he was with him. You know, it's fascinating. But he said, "I have been in Mr. Lusk's company a great deal and have found him interesting and entertaining." I invited him today to a Thanksgiving dinner at the hotel. I'd ordered a turkey, cranberry sauce, and a mince pie. Very good champagne, and also arranged the table prettily with American flags. Ah, oh, there you go. Homesick a little bit, maybe. Homesick. You can take the uh, the American out of America. Wow, how brilliant. But he didn't go home, did he, Fred? No, so that, that's the end of November. Um, he, he, he actually, him, and again, Thomas Addison, his good-looking wife, and George Dillner, they head off to... China, um, but they don't go until the 10th of December. So they've got two weeks after the Thanksgiving dinner. Um, and I've, I've found, again, through Michael Kinnear, a couple of things they got up to. So on the 6th of December, they witness the uh, Viceroy of India, Lord Curzon, parading through India, uh, through, through Calcutta, through Calcutta. Um, which, which they are struck by. And then after that, they go and have a few days at a Darjeeling Hill Resort, um, to a bit of R&R at the end of a busy month in Calcutta recording. There are 500 recordings. I wonder yeah. if they did any recording up there. It's a wonderful... I've done that journey. It's beautiful. Have you? Yeah, yeah. You oh, got wow. this, tiny, this tiny little single-gauge train track. It's beautiful. So they did. So they actually they embraced the colonial, the colonial life well, to a like degree. They've tried degree. all sorts of things, yeah. Yeah. And I think that sort of brings us nicely to the end nicely because to the end. at the... Um, at the dockside, they'll say goodbye to their, their recordings, which get sent back to Hanover, as we said. And, and they they'll get on board... A, another P&O ship. What's that called? The Chusan. Or the Chusan, Chusan, that's right. Where they went to China and Japan. But those adventures are for next time. We'll have to wait for another we'll time. for another time. Okay, I think that's us done um, this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. See you soon. Bye. The Sound of the Hound was edited by Andy Hetherington. For more details on the topics discussed in this episode, visit soundofthehound.com or follow us on Twitter on at the sound of the H1 or on Instagram on the sound of the hound.